This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Awesome Woodies. Awesome Woodies are the original portable hangboard company made by hand here in Australia. They were making these boards years before anyone else. Maybe you've seen their boards hanging off a cliff or a tree at your local crag. They're everywhere. And do you know why? Because they work. Nothing else is going to get you warmed up for your project like the cliff board will. No more shall you pull onto your project with unrecruited fingers. No more shall you burn precious skin doing extra warm-ups. The Awesome Woody's cliff boards are here for you. They love you and want you to be ready for a full day of awesomeness. Their cliff boards still lead the way with quality, durability and functionality. Plus they weigh almost nothing. Take the cliff board Petite for example, one I personally designed with the team. It weighs 280 grams. Mate, my Vegemite sandwich nearly weighs more than that. The cliff boards are also great if you don't have the ability to have a proper hangboard set up at your home. If you do have space for a fixed hangboard or campus board though, Awesome Woodies have got you covered. The Homeboy hangboard is the boss. The wood edges on this board are super comfortable to spend a lot of time hanging from, even when you've trashed yourself all weekend at the crag. Awesome Woodies can also cover your campus board with all the grips you need. Campus rungs in four different sizes, sloper rails and half balls. Everything is there for you to power up. Now for those of you into a minimal aesthetic or just like boning down, Awesome Woodies have got edgies. Pairs of 6, 8 and 10 mil edges made out of premium Tassie oak, which is sourced from sustainable plantations. So not only do these edges look the goods, they are doing good. In fact, all the Awesome Woody's products are made from sustainably sourced timber. Their commitment to the environment and quality really sets these guys apart from the rest. So head to awesomewoodies.com, chuck in Baffle Days at checkout for 15% off your next piece of game-changing equipment. G'day everyone and welcome to the Baffle Days podcast. My name is Tom O'Halloran and on today's episode we are chatting with someone that I've wanted to chat to since the very, very beginning of this podcast going live and that is Ollie Tor from Lattice Climbing. He's a super knowledgeable chap when it comes to training and climbing uh, and the, the depth of knowledge that he's got just blows me away every single time that I... I hear him speak or read something that he's written or really anything that he puts out there is just gold and this conversation was an absolute treat. We don't necessarily dig too deep into like any kind of fingerboarding protocols or any sort of like hardcore science or anything like that. It's more just general concepts and I think it's something that kind of gets missed. Um, we speak a lot about I guess the mental side of things um, and I think that's something that we can very easily overlook. Uh, we also get into a little bit about testing um, and when you should do that. And there's a little truth bomb in there for when you should be testing yourself. But really, that is about it. Uh, we are heading into Christmas. We're about a week out at this point. So, Merry Christmas to you all. I hope you all get a nice little bit of time off over the holiday period. Um, and if not, well... At least you know that you're working during summer, so that's totally fine. All the other chumps have got time off. You'll have your time off during winter. That'll be way better. <laughs> anyway, let's crack on into it. Here's our chat with Ollie Tor. 
G'day everyone and welcome to the Baffle Days podcast. I am Tom O'Halloran and I'm here today with my partner Amanda Watts and uh, we have Ollie Tor from Lattice Climbing. I first heard about you guys a few years ago um, as basically your research into climbing and the, the factors that come into um, predicting climbing abilities and all that sort of stuff kind of came to the forefront. And I found it super duper interesting and I always wanted to chat with yourself or Tom about those sorts of things. So um, you guys are co-founders, is that right? And it's um, well, yeah, welcome to the podcast first. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks, yeah, for, thanks for coming thanks on. Thanks for coming along. Um, yeah, yeah thanks, I guess thanks for being I guess um, yeah, give us a little bit of a rundown about sort of what made what made you kind of jump into that coaching space and and especially the the research side of things um yeah so th- thanks for having me on and um yeah you're right Amanda me and Tom are co-founders so um I guess it all started with um we both myself and Tom uh worked separately as coaches um started developing our own sort of assessment protocols and then brought that together but I guess for us we both come from very different and natural athletic abilities and backgrounds, as well as academic um, backgrounds as well. So that combination is kind of what led us to to sort of pushing each other a little bit into that new space of testing and working together and building a team around us. So um, my background's from gymnastics, and then I went into studying sports science and uh, when I started coaching at uh, Climbing Wall, which Tom owned at the time, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so he, he opened he opened a Climbing Wall and then I ended up coaching at that wall for a while. And he he actually was doing some of the testing already and I was developing some testing. And uh, it turns out I kind of went to to do some work with him as a client. And he was very nice about this, actually. I said, um, I'm coming to do some training with you, but um, I'm going to steal everything, just so that you know. <laughs> At least you're <laughs> up front. And uh, yeah, he, he was great about it, actually. And so we did the testing and then worked together a little bit. And then over the years, uh, I started developing certain of my own testing protocols and that kind of ended up bringing us together. But we're both very sort of database very numbers based and really interested in that side of things as well as all the soft skills and I think for us personally that kind of gives us a baseline to work from and that led into sort of the research side of things and the team that we have today. Yeah it's been it's quite cool to see actually and I think um, Tom and I have got kind of a unique experience in Australia with Tom being the Australian athlete male that went to the Olympics um, and I, I competed in World Cups in the early 2000s, but, you know, we're coming from Australia where you're paying two and a half grand a flight to get to World Cups with climbing gyms back then that were eight metres high at the most um, to try and train for, on these, you know, the massive walls. Like Chamonix was my first overseas comp, um, which was pretty huge. And trying to look at, um, you know, the evolution of testing for climbers. And when you look at um, trying to determine who can be an Olympic athlete, for example, I mean, the current format, let's ignore that, but let's imagine in the next two Olympics, the sort of normal format. And, you know, as a sprinter or as a cyclist, there's different testing protocols you can do that you can tell 
uh, you can talent identify, I suppose, and then stream people. And you can also work out what people's strengths and weaknesses are to create training programs for those sports so much more easily. But climbing's always been sort of a really big grey area. So it's pretty cool to see some of the, um, I guess, training metrics that you guys now have. And you must have a massive database of information now with Lattice. Is that what's sort of coming coming out now? Yeah, it's um, it's definitely built up over time. I think um, I had a little check actually before uh, this chat today, and I think we've got over 7,000 hours worth of testing protocols, not including the rest periods. So wow. um, it's quite a lot of... Uh, a lot of time of people hanging on bits of wood um, <laughs> and lifting weights up. Um, but it's exactly what you just said there, actually, is we're working with these athletes that are um, originally competitive as well. They go into competitions. You're spending thousands of pounds and dollars to travel to crags, to competitions, to try and perform. And they're putting their hearts and souls into this in the rest of their lives. And they're trying to work around relationships and so on. And then a slip can cost you in the semifinals, uh, mm. in the qualifiers, you might misread a problem. You might just have really bad conditions at the crag and you're unable to send. And the frustration behind that after you've put in so much work and training mm. is one of the things that led us to try and create metrics to show, okay, so we started at this point A, we've done this intervention and have we reached point B in a better position? even though the outcome might not show that you have improved mm. and you can do that through training metrics alone. But when you start doing the test retests with athletes, you can do a direct comparison for those athletes. But then once the database is collected, you can show where that would lie and where you're aiming for in the future against similar athletes going for similar goals. And I know like uh, loads of coaches and there's some fantastic coaches out there. And I think people are starting to adopt this now. I know uh, Duncan Brown, who's a, he's a great coach down your way, uh, does similar protocols and similar assessments. And I guess for me, I think it's a relatively essential point to sort of help support the athlete throughout the training year and towards their goals. Um, mm, definitely. But like you said, I think the, the complexity of climbing is definitely the, the biggest issue that we have right now and um mm. i think that's something that we're looking into quite a lot that it, that's funny because i've always been so um when i first heard about all the metrics and stuff i was so kind of resistant to them and i was like ah, oh, no it doesn't count it doesn't count but then I, I so often come back to when i'm not feeling good while i'm climbing and you're like oh i'm just weak and blah 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 i come back to my like oh turns out i can still like do this in my strength test as a, you know, one rep max, or I can still hang on for this long or whatever it is. And it's funny, as much as I try and shun those <clears throat> quantifiable metrics, I still actually come back to them as a place of safety. And it's like you're saying there, like they're awesome indicators and checkpoints to have along the path to see how people are going and, and can be used as a like, well, yep, you just had a foot slip actually. It's got you know, you're still climbing super well, you're climbing way better than you were 12 months ago and it was just a foot slip or, you know, a bit of a misread and then you can actually work on sort of um, uh, improving those intangible sides of the, the performance of climbing. Uh, absolutely. And I think um, you're dead right there that it's just one element of it. And I think it's a great tool to use, but it's just one tool in the toolbox as well. Mm. And I think... 
you know what we're like as as climbers we want to perform all the time we the the classic thing is uh you have a bad weekend and that's your your performance right now mm. that's it that's kind of where I am and I think as we apply so much self-worth to our performance I think it starts to spread and creep into the rest of our personalities our lives and these sort of metrics when used in the right way can actually kind of level that platform a little bit make sure yeah. they're a bit more consistent I think it's um you know I'm it's funny because Tom and I to give you context Tom and I have got an age difference like I'm 43 he's 29 and I've been climbing I don't know for 26 years or something now um you know indoor outdoor competition training all of it like one of those lifer climbers and I work as a climbing dietitian in Australia so um, so I have access to a lot of climbers and a lot of climbers and athletes' brains. And I think one thing as an aging athlete, and we're all aging. So, you know, any any podcast we do when age comes up, I'm, you know, it doesn't matter if you're 20 or you're 40, you're aging. And if you've got one eye on the future and you understand how to work with your age, from all the research I've been doing, it'd be interesting to see what you think. It seems to me like you can actually maintain quite a lot of your strength and power for a long time and that's going to be something that I'm particularly interested in seeing in climbing and what the metrics say for the next 20 years, like from 40 to 60 for uh, the generation of climbers that are still cranking really hard and have the good shoes and access to good crags and training facilities. Um, and the other thing I think is that where the training metrics come in with ageing is Sometimes it can just be there's a lot more noise in life when you're 40 compared to when you're 20. And actually, if you know that you're um, you're dead hanging with the same amount of weight as you were when you were 25 and your um, pull-ups are the same and your deadlift's the same, then actually you can narrow it down to the noise in life or something else that's going on and it can give you a bit more confidence when you're at the cliff because the, the people that I hear at the cliff whinging about their age I yell at them and I say, you're not allowed to talk about your age at the cliff. That's not why you're falling off. You're falling off because your footwork's crap. So, um, yeah. 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 What thoughts do you have around that? Um, oh, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think one thing for, for us that's changed in, in our approach with data is um, taking into account personal anthropometrics and age and, and location even. Mm. So profile, the crag, all of these differences completely changed the the level and the measurement of that metric as well so a um, 16 year old female athlete will require a different set of scores and different set of um, baseline metrics than a 50 year old adult male um, however there's still like parameters which we can discuss a bit later around those but in terms of like you said with with the rest of life getting in and having to sort of balance that out. There's a really good uh, book that I've read recently. And I think the, the analogy that uses in that is that the human body and the human mind is, is a budgeting machine. So we, yeah. our, our mind is all about predicting the future and that is for energy output and it's purely evolutionary. So you've got a certain budget that you can spend when you've got kids, when you've got a busy job, when you've got other things going on, your body's determining how much energy it has spare. And when we're trying to throw in training into that, and we're constantly trying to add and add and add, your body's trying to work around this whole budgeting scheme. So it will shut you down. 
if you're like in terms of adaptations if it doesn't feel it has the budget for that and I think for me working with older athletes and I'd say I'm quite lucky in the sense of I feel it's probably more the middle-aged athletes that have the busiest lives I work with some amazing sort of 60 plus year olds that you know their their life is simplified again and they're Mm. they're making gains they're they're getting stronger and they're like more psyched than ever and they're they're doing personal bests and it's partly the the training that they've changed a little bit it's partly their approach but it's also the fact that all the rest of their noise in life has kind of dropped away slightly and the kids have left home they're they've probably semi-retired or retired and they're actually going sport climbing through the winter in the sort like getting in the sun mm. so um I think the complexity behind the rest of life is is where all the soft skills of coaching really comes in. And this mm, data definitely. is a great thing to refer to, but um, it needs a coach's eye to kind of understand how to utilize that. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. Um, <laughs> says, how- yes, says Tom, having just trained for two years for the Olympics with yeah. a seven-year-old. <laughs> yes. How have oh, you, yeah. um, your, your view towards the, the data and the statistics and the correlations and all that has that evolved over time like the way that you and Tom look at that stuff and and how has it evolved I guess um I think it it has evolved in the sense of probably the numbers have surprised us over the time and the individual differences um I think probably quite a big misconception uh from the outside world is um we're very numbers based. We kind of like, we have set scales that people must adhere to. And then we provide sort of, uh, training interventions based on those numbers when actually all it's ever been is a, is a reference point. And so the, the team we've actually, we've got quite a big team now and we've got like data analysts and researchers who are on the team. They're absolutely amazing at their jobs, but the ethos is still this provides a baseline number for us to work towards and the testing has evolved and the numbers have evolved and the, the size of the data set. So we'll be getting more and more really refined, like we're getting super detailed on what we can sort of predict. And the predictions tend to be pretty good actually, but that never is kind of like the end point for us. The, the end point for us is always the person at the end of that. Mm-hmm. The, that data set, that testing protocol. And I think for me, the evolution has just become more and more about the behavior that leads into that person. And the numbers and the data set has always been a relatively constant thing in my mind. And the evolution of that has been more in terms of the advancements. But uh, for me personally, as a coach, it's more about learning more about behaviors, having more exposure to different types of athletes. Like I said, I've been lucky enough to work with people in their their late 60s, uh, people, uh, kids that are 10 years old, people with really hard, high-powered jobs, and then elite athletes trying to climb 9A boulders. So I think that, for me, is the evolution of picking little bits out and taking on this information from this massive collection of people and Mm. then applying that context to the database. Yeah. If there was a piece of um, that intangible information that you could quantify in some way, what what would that be? I guess because there's so many things that that play 
into the mix? Like, is there something you're like, I wish we could be able to quantify this? Oh, um, in terms of those sort of soft behavioral. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like brain yeah. noise or something. Like, did this, if you meditate for 10 minutes every day, does that, <laughs> does that minus um, three hard days of private practice? And then does that equal more more um, training adaptation? Or can you measure like if you could quantify how hard someone's actually trying or, or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's really it's a really good it's a really good question. I mean, um, I mean, techniques always an interesting thing, and we've been building sort of climbing walls with force plates on the holds and and different trying to track different methods of movement. But I think the the mental side is is the really interesting question. And for me, I guess one thing is um, sort of measuring the load of sort of that, like you say, the ego that goes into it, if just to call mm-hmm. it the ego, um, and how that, how that plays an extra role. So that fear of failure element versus that motivation behind just trying to succeed and who like I, I know some some amazing climbers that just um not to kind of not to say this in a negative way but they just don't seem to really think too much and it's just that it like even in the rest of the time they're just they they take on the thing that's in front of them they apply themselves fully and then they move on and then there's other people which I'll include myself in this where there's so much noise internally going on during mm. most tasks and it's probably more similar to that sort of flow state and not being able to sort of focus and, and provide attention. So I think firstly, that kind of attention factor would be an amazing thing to measure. And then the allostatic load generally, I mean, we, we are trying to collect data in terms of uh, sleep and stress, and we, we do this sort of regularly with our athletes. Um, and I think that plays a big role, but I think understanding the initial interpretation of that is what's important. For instance, um, I might, uh, you, you've just been training for two years with a seven-year-old child and I'm sure you've been getting up at night and you've been having to show high energy to, um, to your daughter like in, in times when you're feeling tired. And that to you at a stress level might be sort of a, a five or six. And then for me, the exact same stimulus might be an 11. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm exhausted. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not used to this. So this is like, seems really hard to me. And, but if we were both doing that same task and we recorded uh, looking after child, that means completely different things to different people. Yeah. So I think understanding people's personal reference points and then the stress and uh, ability to, apply apply tension throughout the day based on those reference points is something that I think would be really interesting. One of the things I would, I've always thought as like an awesome thing and, and you kind of half referenced it there before was like to be able to quantify technique to a degree is yeah, holds basically on a force plate where you can measure the degree to which like a, the amount of load that's going through and B, the direction of the load the correctness of the grip yeah well it's basically like to where is that foot pushing in what direction because is it just straight down or is it like off to the left because you're in this kind of funky stance and 
how much weight is being taken through the, the legs and at what point is uh, are the feet kind of driving the hardest and what point of the is the dead point and all that stuff I think that would be so incredible for someone to build out you know a, you know your lattice yeah. board like that it would be insane to be able to quantify something it, like that yeah and it's putting um it's putting the coach's eye into a uh a set of data measurements isn't it i mean we've mm. we've explored so many bits of technology now um in terms of movement tracking and force plates and and stuff and i guess i think one thing that's interesting is um we can do this to a point and i guess one thing that i try and do and i try and teach to the coaches a lot is that your brain effectively will do this as long as you are observing enough and having enough sort of baseline measurements to, to begin with. So like once again, with say finger strength, um, you can look at basic finger strength. You can look at sort of measurement on a 12, 20 millimeter edge in a half crimp position. That's great starting point. Then you watch two people climb. That'll give you a bit more information. And then you look at the, the type of bodies that they have, where their weight's distributed, the type of movements they do, the power that they apply in that movement and that gives you a little bit more information so then you go back to the finger strength and you go okay which fingers are individually stronger and what's the shape of your fingers versus your hands and what do you preference in terms of those positions so being able to stay in a really high-end crimp will change your ability to apply force downwards through the triceps versus someone who's better in an open position who needs to keep the elbow lower to get that force through the hold so once again, that takes back to the movement of, okay, this is why this person's flicking and this is why this person's pulling through statically because mm. their fingers are stronger in those positions. And then you watch them again, you go, okay, this person's got more leg strength. And I guess it's the, the testing that we do starts off with a load of basic tests that everyone does. And then you go, okay, cool. So let's go diagnostician on this we'll try and be a bit of a Sherlock Holmes and okay I've I've think this theory um I can see I can factually see that something's going on okay let's try and apply a theory to this fact and then we test it and it might come up wrong it might come up right and then you you repeat that cycle over and over and then to me I guess one thing that I've been trying to tell my elite athletes about this and about the rest of their lives and and the way we work together is I'm, I'm effectively trying to create a playbook that is designed just for them. And I reference these basic metrics compared to their peer group. But the playbook for them is you might have this type of uh, fingers, this type of hands, this type of natural movement. This is where the weakness lies. This is where the type of movement is. And when you build that up more and more and more, then you can tactically apply your strengths and weaknesses to a climb in the moment or look at how you might change your profile over a longer term period. Mm. If that makes but, sense, am I Oh, it makes total sense. It's awesome. It's like kind of mesmerizingly um, geeking out actually. And I'm reflecting on, we couldn't climb on Tuesday. It was too cold. And so a friend of mine who's a lot shorter than me, um, I think she's got an, an equal ape factor. So, you know, no plus, no minus, whereas I've got plus nine. And um, oh, wow. maybe... <laughs> Maybe. centimeters 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 yes yeah. okay yes centimeters. A, bit, a, bit, a bit less given 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not um, as much of a knuckle dragger. But yeah, it's funny. I mean, I'm I'm in my head a lot when I climb. She's much much <clears> clearer <throat> when she climbs. I'm like you, Ollie. And um, so when we train together, and you know, we train a lot by ourselves just because that's how time works. And so to have a session together on the Woody at home, you you compare yourself. You can't help it. But you, we've got completely different body types and completely different strengths and weaknesses. So when you get a chance to have a session with a friend, you're like, oh, wow, they're like really locked on that or they're really crimped or they're really high up in their body. But but yeah, to to add that layer of thinking, yep, yeah, she's a more compact climber than me. I'm longer and have longer reach. And of course, then you're going to have different strengths and weaknesses other than just she's stronger and I'm crap, <laughs> which yeah. is how you, which is how your brain interprets what you're seeing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it's mm. it's hard to switch that off sometimes, isn't it, in the moment? But uh, yeah, mm. well, as soon as you take that step back, um, I mean, it works. I think this is one thing that we found really interesting recently. The same thing works metabolically, so even in the things you can't see. And this is where some of our more recent tests come out. So uh, we've started using digital uh, force plates to testing. And one of the things we've looked at is critical power, uh, critical force. Um, and I must say, I'm just to kind of uh, give some credit as well to the to the rest of the team. I'm by far not the expert anymore on the Lattice team. I, I'm kind of the person who doesn't know how the technology works and I'm not as up to date <laughs> on the research as everyone else. So any coach out there, if you surround yourself with smarter people, you'll end up being relatively um, have a successful team is, is the way I see it. But so crit- critical force anyway is. It's looking at this um, baseline metric where it can be sustained without pro- progressive progressive uh, depletion of sort of those high energy substrates. So it's pretty much, if you see it, it's the point where you can keep walking or keep jogging mm-hmm. indefinitely until you completely empty your stores. That's kind of your critical power, critical force. Um, and there's a lot of complexity within climbing anyway. But so we've got, we've tested um, loads of people with this now and a really good example of it of how that sort of theory I discussed before works with critical force is um, Alex Barrows, who's uh, a really good climber, 9A climber, he's uh, done some stuff down your way. He's uh, the husband of Ella Russell, who who I work with, who's a fantastic coach. Uh, she's just climbed 8B plus as well. Um, and they are very different climbers. He's massive, he's six foot three. She's tiny pocket rocket. He's an absolute enduro wad, and she's just a power beast. So we did the critical force testing with them, and his critical force, not surprisingly, is massive compared to hers. So he can sustain an effort, a much higher effort, without depleting those high-energy substrates. And she can't sort of sustain that effort, and it also means that the higher that critical forces the quicker you can recover mm. because as soon as you go below that you're in recovery mode so the higher that is you the quicker you can recover so what does that actually mean tactically for them now so they've got that basic information they've just walked to the crag so what that tells me is if alex can find a rest whether it's marginal whether it's a quick knee bar which he's good at uh, whether it's just a quick shake out he can get a lot back in that situation so he can climb slower he can rest more. He can sort of hold on to those positions and just fight the kind of urge to keep going because his forearms will recover. Mm. Whilst Ella, you need to get moving. Like let's let's go faster. Let's not not rest. And 
it's great doing this information because Ella was actually red pointing a big roof climb here in the UK. And at the time she had been sort of getting towards the end, did this testing and she said, okay, cool. I know I've got to do a little bit different now. So she skipped a load of clips. She just raced through the bits where she was trying to get some micro rests and sent the route. And that little bit of information and change is just gone, okay, this is where I'm at now. I could probably increase, I can increase my critical force in the future. I can train, but I'm in project season. Uh, I don't, I haven't got time to adapt. This is years worth of adaptations, mm -hmm. but my tactics and my behavior that I'm going to base this on can change and can make a performance difference. So we're working the, the results around the person rather than trying to change the person to the results. Mm. That, that's, that's super interesting. So cool. I, I know that it's so true. Hey, when you when you're pushing against your own upper limit of your capacity, it's like shackles are off. Anything goes. I'm going to exploit every single little bit that I've got, and I'm going to exploit it to the nth degree. And if that means, yep, cool. I don't have the the power or the, the ability to apply force for as long. I'm just going to race. And to have that information is, it's obviously in this case, like a total game changer. And um, the nutrition nerd in me has so many questions. <laughs> so it's like, um, you know, there's a, there's, um, there's always a fad in climbing for not eating enough. And um, there's a few climbers I'm particularly worried about at the moment where the conversation is just continually about, they rave on at the cliff about how little they're eating and how many kilojoules they can drop and then they manage to do have two burns on their project and can't have another burn and they can't, somehow they haven't put two and two together that mm. they're not eating and they're running out of energy and that's why they can have two burns and that's it um like literally just two two climbs in a day yeah so yeah. how do you do you separate that out like is this just a do do you pay attention to how fueled they are that day when they come in for that testing and all that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's, that's the same thing again where um, like we have two nutritionists on the team. Um, so we've got some some people that are obviously, like I said, I've got people that I don't know enough about nutrition. So we've got people on the team that know a lot more than I do. And I think this is where you get more and more expertise that contributes. And like you've just said, from where you're coming from, you can already see potential issues mm. where that might arise. Okay, let's fill that hole. Let's make sure that this isn't an issue. Um, so I, in terms of the testing, we do advise sort of the fueling beforehand mm. uh, and consistency beforehand. But I would say I'm not someone who would like behavior change to occur before a baseline measure because that is where they are right now. And if I did a testing session with someone and they produced a certain level of results and I thought they could definitely sustain longer efforts. And the only thing that came out of that testing session was we sat down, we had a conversation and I, I kind of got the same idea. You can kind of see those patterns in underfueled athletes. Mm. And if I said to them, cool, uh, the training intervention is going to be this. And um, what I'd like you to start doing is, is these nutritional changes you're going to talk to this member of the team and um, this will be a big point. And if my training does not very much for them compared to what they could have done themselves, but the fact they've come in and they've now got that new sort of advice about uh, fueling better and they come back in and they retest 
in a more fueled state, that's a success to me. Um, So I think the point one is to always understand where people are right now. Mm. And then irregardless of what the intervention is, as long as it's sort of productive, then that's kind of the most important thing for me. I think um, that's something that I'd just like to say because about the testing. So I've been a testing avoider at different times in my life because I haven't, because I've wanted to be better before I did the testing, which yes. is, which is stupid. Um, I mean, it's very logical because it's trying to protect your ego. Um, yeah. But, but at the same time, you know, it's funny because one of the interventions I have for some of the, um, particularly my female athletes that I work with on two of their plans that I sent out this week, it said, I want you to do some testing protocols for where you're at with your training now and then in six weeks or eight weeks or three months or if they've got a coach, it's, you know, talk to your coach about doing this now because because they're feeling bad that they've got so much mental load that um, they're not um, deadlifting above 65 kilos and they can't get above that except that they're 53 years old and they're um, deadlifting 65 kilos three times a week which is awesome anyway so and they're regularly doing strength training but they can't see the positive because they're just bummed that they're not progressing with the 65 kilos so I think that for anyone who's listening go test yourself um we'll talk to talk a bit more with about the crimped app I think which is the lattice testing app um in a little bit but I think it's very much worth just having your your base metrics there for yourself yeah yeah and I think the the way to look at it is um Obviously, uh, you're a, you're a dietitian, and it's it's like trying to work with someone to improve your diet, and then the days that you measure what you're eating, you eat really well, and you just have a perfect diet, which you never usually buy. <laughs> it's just not realistic, is it? You need to show what you're doing day to day, and actually mm. get an understanding of where you are right now. I mean, one mm, thing definitely. that I see an issue with a lot is um, some some people do become a bit too obsessed with the numbers. And they want to test too frequently. They want to know exactly where they are right now. And I think one thing we see is uh, we'll have a lot of climbers coming to us who are really strong and we'll say, cool, okay, the area for you to work on is your uh, anaerobic capacity, your power endurance, your endurance. And they start seeing those strength metrics drop. And that is absolute. And we're saying, okay, this is the plan. Just so you're aware, this is absolutely normal. We know what's going to happen. Are you okay with this? And they'll be sort of saying, "Yep, yeah, no worries." A couple of months later, oh, I'm I'm feeling my strength metrics aren't there. My power metrics have gone down, and it's really hard for us. And I I've done the same, um, like exactly sort of understanding of why it happens, is that it's really hard to see anything, any numbers go down that you've kind of applied some sort of worth to. Mm. So. I think it's it's really important for us as coaches to know how to apply these assessments, the frequency of them, but then also give the right education and information to the athletes of why they're being done and when they're being done so that they can better understand it and mm. and get that correct buy-in. Because I think it's if you don't get buy-in, then you've kind of lost them from the very start. Yeah. Um, lucky enough for me, I've and the same with Tom as well. And the reason why we worked together well in the first place is I've came from a um, exceptionally strong position in terms of just basic strength compared to a lot of climbers and compared to my climbing ability. Um, so I was the, I was the typical very strong climber, but couldn't quite apply it to the, to the rock. 
and then I was really unfit. And then Tom was really fit and, um, yeah, he was, he was pretty poor on some basic strength stuff in terms of his shoulders and his fingers. So in terms of we switched profiles, he became less fit, but stronger. I became a lot less strong and much fitter. And boulder grades, sport grades, trad grades all went up for both of us. And having that kind of opposition gives you that amazing kind of story and narrative to tell other people and give an example to give them mm. confidence. And I think because we've got such a big coaching team now, they all work with individual athletes. They they support them on a day-to-day basis. And we can now draw on all of those coaches' experience um, to kind of give that reference point and to get that buy-in and confidence. For instance, we have a we have a client right now that was trying to uh, recently flash Freerider. Um, yep. Came to us with a certain level of metrics and sort of said this was the goal. And I can look around the office and in the office right now, there's three people that climb Freerider. Um, we've got someone who will come to us with a bouldering goal or competing in the World Cup. There's a coach next to me that's just competed in one of the World Cup rounds or just mm. bouldered 80 plus. Um, and it's, it's great having that level of expertise because you've got a story to have a relative um, understanding of the situation but then you've also got seen that journey go through already and you've seen sort of what the potential metrics could look like to get buy-in from the client. Mm, and I know uh, like a story we get quite a lot is people thinking they've got exceptionally weak fingers and they're not able to climb a certain level. Um, so my partner, Maddie Cope, is a much better climber than I am. And she's uh, she's climbed Freerider, she's climbed 8C. A really good trad climber. Um, and she has one of the weakest fingers out of anyone we've tested. Definitely out of anyone we've tested at that level. Um, and just on like a basic edge. And if you took that as the basic metric, you kind of go, okay, so this is the bottom of the bell curve of what's possible with those fingers. So we need to work on this area. But um, everything sort of above that kind of shows that, you know, a lot of things are possible if you work on the other sort of areas around that. Mm. Um, and I think I think having that kind of spread of understanding and seeing all those stories go through and different climbers go through the system, it kind of gives you a much more bigger perspective and context in every situation. Yeah, yeah I, I kind of think that those outliers, especially at the bottom end of the curve, like your partner, uh, <laughs> are almost the the absolute gold that comes out of all of these data points and the testing because so many people like you say come to to like bring up the excuse oh my fingers aren't good enough i just need i just need to have more pull and that's the immediate excuse is like i, I need to be better at this but i think it's so awesome well, it's to the immediate see. driver i think more than the excuse yeah and i think it's yeah. i think the thing is that as climbers what we always need to keep in mind is that we want to be better climbers. We don't want to be better fingerboarders or um, or like deadlifters. You want to be a better climber. And it's all the different elements that you need to trust in putting into your training with your coach to make you a better climber, not just being able to dead hang with 60 kilos strapped to you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there are people out there that are pretty keen on, on just that. But um, I, I'm, <laughs> There are I'm many t- in the Blue Mountains. <laughs> 
I'm, t- I'm totally on, on board with that sort of approach. And if people, if people want to be able to climb like a, a very basic problem and, and that's what they're looking for and they want, they want to hang on, then that's, that's a certain goal. Like I've got a lot of friends that just weightlift or they do strongman competitions and they love those metrics. But in terms of when we're discussing real climbing performances, you need to have an understanding of, of everything that goes into it. And like I said, we, I've got sort of Maddie on one side who I can say, well, yes, her fingers are weaker, but her other strengths are so good that it's amazing um, that we need to, I, I want to see that in other people. I want to get those strengths. And then myself as well, I can, I quickly develop strength on a basic fingerboard. Um, but the project we're on right now, I can't, get my left foot on this hold as easy as she can. And my hips are cramping up a little bit and I've been stretching every night. And I'm just like, I do not care about having much stronger fingers to do this move. Mm. I just want to get my foot on that foothold. Mm. And I think when you can sort of see that that spectrum, um, that's where you have really interesting conversations. And we've got um, a new member of the team called Ian Cooper, who is an amazing sort of mathematician and has worked with, uh, Remus, who who started off with me and Tom, to develop the new sort of um, profile that we've got, because we used to hand out bits of data with sort of a line of where someone was, and then a line of where the data set said for their anthropometrics, their gender, and so on, where they could be. And there was always a conversation around that. There was always the coach sort of saying, look, this is kind of like the average, this is the mean. This is don't all take only take it as like a marker. And then this is where you are. But people saw the gap. Everyone only went, oh, man, I'm really weak. And you go, no, 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 you're really good at climbing. Um, it's funny because it, for me, I would see the even the top like, yeah, it's my 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 the I guess the way my brain works and how I'm wired is that sort of information scares me because I don't want someone to tell me what the top could be. Because what if I want it to be even higher than it says, you know, it's, yeah, it's interesting that some people love those, they just love those numbers. And yeah, the gap, everyone's always going to see the gap, aren't yeah. they? And th- this is where this, um, so we, the, the new stuff that we've developed is, is like the bell-shaped curve of this is where, this is where you are. This is the bottom of predictions for that grade of this uh, attribute or this style of climbing, and then this is the top. So in this scenario, and then also what does your current ability allow? So in the same bell-shaped curve. So you say I can I complete a certain score in a test, whether it's power endurance, endurance, finger strength, so on. If you find if I find the right problem for me that suits me exactly, and I put in a certain amount of time on it and it works all my other attributes, this is a potential. And then if I find go abroad and I'm going and doing something very opposite to me, this is something that's probably likely to happen. And it still will see people going out of that remit. And like you said, it's not, it's quite a big range generally. So it generally doesn't tend to, it's not like a ceiling for most people. Yeah. But what it does do is it kind of provides a little bit more of a refined goal setting um, tool than anything else. Mm. So we have climbers that will climb locally and climb 8C plus, really fingery climbing, very quick one and a half minute efforts. And then they'll go abroad and they'll be building up to this trip. 
and they'll expect a certain level to be performing abroad. And it's nice to go, look, um, not that we're saying that you can't do this, but if you want to climb that level, this is the type of climb that you should be looking for and this is the tactics you should use. But if you want to just go and have a fun trip and you want a kind of an idea about what we think might happen on that trip, this is the styles of climbing and the grades we might see. And actually what we tend to find is that actually reduces a lot of pressure, provides a lot more fun Mm. and gives much more realistic goals and then for those people that don't like that it's a great motivator because they're like screw you guys I'm going to prove you wrong <laughs> so it's a win-win yeah it sounds really interesting actually yeah yeah it's funny this whole conversation makes me want to just fly over there and be, just be a lab rat <laughs> for you guys oh, you're very you're very welcome you're very welcome <laughs> we've actually um we're about to embark on another round of uh, so we, we're teamed up with about five universities and we go through rounds of, of new research and trying to publicate mm. um, papers. I say mm. we, Dave Giles, uh, Dr. Dave, Dave Giles, who is actually sort of managing the whole company now. Um, he's the I think, he's, the I think we emailed. I think because I, I was getting a workshop ready for Climbstrong in America and, yeah, and I, can't, I, I could develop a climbing nutrition workshop off the top of my head but I can never let myself do that because I always just want to check and do some more reading. And so yeah. 25 journal articles later, I had my one and a half hour workshop ready. But oh, I nice. um, yeah, actually read some of his stuff and I think that's how yeah, I ended up emailing him. But yeah, it's, I'm so envious of the research that's getting done over there. If, yeah, if you guys, um, if we could move over there, it'd be so fun to be part of it because Australia is so big and it's such a young sport in Australia. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, Australia's got such a good uh, history of testing in sport. I mean, one of my first uh, textbooks I spent far too much money on as a student mm. was uh, the Australian Sports Institute uh, Assessment Protocols. Mm. It's just full of tests and so on. But the the nice thing is about collaborating with all these academic institutions is um, researchers are psyched. So if you're ever a, a coach or a climber out there and you've got a theory or something as long as you're willing to put in the the kind of time and, and the work into going and helping most researchers are just psyched to help out so um at the moment we're uh, in january i'm about to start a new power testing research uh, protocol and paper so we've got this uh, list of power measurements because one thing that we struggle with in, in climbing is obviously we know with finger strength you've got the your base strength but then that only tells you part of the story that your contact strength, your power and application of that strength and how closely that relates to the maximum force you can apply is as much indicative of performance as the actual strength itself. And also will tell us what type of tactics you need on movements. So the power testing we're going to do is looking at upper body, lower body, forearm specific. Um, and that's with Sheffield Hallam University, but it's also with, um, a very talented researcher and climber uh, from Deakin University in Australia called Ashley Hendy. Yes, I know uh, Ash, yes. Yeah, so she, we've, we've been chatting over the last year and COVID has kind of put a delay on things, but that's about to happen in January. So that's really exciting. And, and she contacted us and we've been working together since on that. So hopefully uh, I can actually get some data for her and reward some of her efforts that she's put in so far. Um, mm by testing some of these athletes and 
And like I said, the nice thing about having such a big coaching team now is um, I've got just a, a load of lab rats ready to go. They're all psyched <laughs> climbers. They want to know more about themselves and they're right in the office next door. So I can just grab them and tell them to do some testing with me. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of cool. And I think the those sort of tests that are going on and the research happening is is quite exciting. And I think we'll be coming up with some good, interesting uh, findings over the next year or so. Yeah, it's so exciting. I've got some got some detailed questions for you, just nerdy kind of silly questions. So why, and this is something I, I did one of the, your t- testing protocols last week and I put a, um, a post up on my Instagram <laughs> to see what people do. So um, well, we should just explain quickly. So lattices have got their own app that has um, called Crimped. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So Crimped is it's actually a company in itself, and uh, myself, Tom, and uh, some great guys in America, uh, Peter Klimek and Mike Stelton, uh, uh, developed that. And Peter was actually a client of mine. Uh, so we're kind of lattice is using the crimped app and we're kind of teamed up as owners of that um but yeah we've kind of put all the resources into that sort of testing and training protocols on there um and yeah and it's got basically you can go and do your own tests through it and run you through with timers yeah it's it's got got some good timers and also it it records it for you which you know i mean I've, i've got thousands of training journals but but it's kind of um cool to have it on your phone there too and yeah one thing one bit of feedback you should put women's cycles so that you can track when the testing was in relation to that it's just one bit of feedback oh um, yeah we've uh maddie, maddie spent so much time uh, uh we've been we've been trying to do loads of work on on sort of that side of of athletic performance and mm. um like we've looked at sort of the, the different apps that you can use for tracking and yeah maddie's uh definitely leading the way and doing we do we do this thing called coach catch-ups which is uh, once a week where one coach presents on a topic to everyone else so everyone else is informed and up to speed and I think um, I must say I think a lot of the particularly the male coaches on the team were quite shocked at the information coming out Mm. uh, from those coach catch-ups about how a cycle affects performance and and all the research that goes into that and the, the different nuances but what it's done is allow us to kind of work with our female athletes. And I had a really proud moment actually about six months ago where a 16, 17 year old athlete of mine that I worked with for years just came out in a conversation and said, Oh, by the way, um, can we have a chat about my cycle and when I need to change up my, my sort of power sessions? Uh, Cause I think this will be really improve my training. And I was like, Whoa, that's flipping cool that that's happening now. Very um, cool. Yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it'd be amazing to get that on the crimp tap and sort of add some of those elements to it because I think it's totally underutilized at the moment in sport. Well, yeah, and also knowing like, you know, at the if you're three days before, I'm going to say, I'm just going to say this, if you're three days before you get your period and you do your testing and that's when you're the flattest and, um, you know, you've got less l- mental arousal for the session, then, you know, is that, I think that's interesting then to compare to a different time you test or I don't know what could, how that information can be used in the future, but I think it's definitely capturable. Yeah, we, um, we actually have that in our training plans at the moment. The, so we have base training plans, which are delivered on the crimp tap, which are written by a coach. We do testing and we take into account the, the athlete's lifestyles. Uh, but then that kind of 
the that's for people that aren't as interested in communication and then mm. the majority of the plans that we do are sort of high communication high sort of plan edits and that is definitely something that since we've started putting out on media pretty much all of our female athletes do discuss with us so we actually change the the type of training that goes on like just before your your period will drop the the type of coordination that's being used we'll do much more basic movements we'll stop uh doing certain high glycolytic loads during that time and then um we'll change up depending on what type of uh period that you have and how um how your body responds to that in terms of what core you want to do and so on mm. and i think that's the the really powerful thing behind it is having those conversations with the athletes being able to make that individual difference and like you said you're not making someone do testing on a day they just feel absolutely shit mm. and they just they don't want to be doing their maximum efforts but it's in the plan so yeah that conversation, <laughs> yeah. that conversation is brilliant yeah um so why do you why not I guess what's the benefit to um the two rep um max pull-up instead of one rep yeah because Um, I asked on Instagram I did the two rep and I can see from a climbing point of view makes complete sense but um but every on Instagram I think about 90% of people were like no way one rep only one rep but one rep's obviously so much easier than two yeah um to be honest uh it's me not that I don't want to say I've not got faith in in climbers and athletes testing but um remote testing needs to be as simple and as clear as possible and from my experience seeing people doing one rep there's it's like if you ever noticed people going around and trying to do one arm pull-ups and <laughs> their calf muscles seem to get quite involved in that initial pull <laughs> um I think one rep max is there's so much uh ability to kind of like move around the situation become more efficient without conscious effort a lot of the time um so two rep max just meant that the quality Mm. was a bit more confirmed because your feet are off the ground for the second rep you're basically delicately saying that people are cheating their way through (laughs) oh yeah yeah i'd I'd say it's it's we're we're a budgeting system like i said before humans are designed to be efficient i actually uh I set um, Tom a uh, climb when I was training him years ago to get stronger shoulders. And I, I developed this uh, climb for him on his home board. And it's like a systematic climb, working very set positions. And I was like, and he really struggled on it. He absolutely hated it. But it was like absolutely perfect to hit the muscles that he needed. And I went back three weeks later and his body was contorting around the positions and he was flicking between <laughs> them. And I was like, this is not what we're trying to achieve here. You just, you just worked around the problem even more. And I was like, that's why you're a great climber, but that's not why, that's why you're a weaker, got weak <laughs> shoulders. So let's, <laughs> let's find a middle ground here. That's the funny thing too, I think with around that training stuff is um, remembering that with those exercises, you are trying to get better at certain things. And if you are cheating your way through it, whether consciously or unconsciously, you're only doing yourself the disservice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's really hard in those scenarios as well, because particularly like when you're you're mentally fatigued, um, it's quite hard to kind of dig deep into that level of attention and concentration. Um, 
if anyone's interested, there's a, a fantastic book called Endure. And it's got some really good research by a chap called Sam Marcora on mental fatigue and performance and just doing basic tasks and then asking athletes to perform. Um, it's almost like having, I think it was compared to sleep deprivation in terms of what it does to your performance. So if you're imagining that you're, like you just said, you're supposed to be getting a maximum intensity an RP of eight or nine out of 10 uh, during that session. And you can see people getting more and more pumped and then they just suddenly seem to give up. And it's quite hard in that scenario to sort of, um, to sort of say, oh, well, you clearly, you probably could try a bit harder. Like you can really go for it on that move. Um, and I think people don't quite often realize how much more they have in the tank or mm. how much stricter they can do a movement or how much harder they can try in that position. Um, so I think like one, having that mental clarity going into the session really helps with maximizing your sort of effort in those movements and, you know, not cheating yourself, um, in a, in an unconscious way, but then also is just understanding the intent of the session and setting the intent from the very start. And I think that's one thing that also gets missed is I don't care if one of my climbers does a single problem in their training session, according to whether it's a red problem, a yellow, a V6, a V7. Like I, I don't care if you cheat anything. The idea of the session is the stimulus that we're trying to achieve and the message that's going to the body. And that message to the body is what's most important in any training. And therefore, if you know what the message is supposed to be, then you never really, you, you won't cheat it because you know what that sort of stimulus is going, supposed to feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's so funny. It makes me think that so, like so many of my sessions, because we've been dividing time, have been um, uh, get through the session, get all the hangs done or get the circuits done. And it doesn't sort of really matter where your brain is because as long as you get it done, you get it done. But um, there is a lot to be said for having the right mindset. And even if it's a shorter session that's really concentrated and you know what you're trying to get out of it, the quality of the session is going to be a lot better and the quantity's not the, you're probably getting more impact out of less quantity. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's one of those, isn't it? I think you know, we're always going to have to, it's a, it's a juggling act, isn't it? In terms of mm. like the days where you are tired, if you've got, basic movements and you know the seconds to hang the the weight to use the the reps to do it's quite nice because you can execute and you can take the brain out a little bit but i think on anything which involves maximum intensity um movement quality coordination i think those sessions really need to be prioritized earlier mm -hmm. in the training week or around the fresher periods because there's a lot more of a conscious involvement in that Mm, and, yeah, that makes sense. And I think like our bodies adapt to those messages. Like we're always trying to stay, your body's always trying to stay at homeostasis. So it's, it wants to be the same, even even in an intramuscular level, your ATP stores, like your energy stores in the muscle want to stay the same even during exercise. That's why your, your body replenishes them and you're trying to use different uh, energy metabolisms to keep them there. So when you're giving your body this, sort of stimulus of change it's going to go okay i need to get better so i can you know i don't have to change much to this new stimulus so whatever you're throwing at your body the message you're telling it to to do 
your body wants to adapt to it so that it can stay feel normal and that feels normal for it it doesn't like to be pushed and i think if you confuse the stimulus too much that's when the body gets confused the message is lost so the reason why it matters with that intent of the session is if i go into a aerobic capacity session where i'm supposed to be going really really easy and this is a mistake we see quite a lot and i'm trying to tell my body i'm trying to give the message that it's going to be on the wall for a very long time i need to improve my ability to recover every time i release the handhold and grab another one and it needs to get much better operating in an aerobic sense if i go into it and i've just eaten like a load of Snickers and I'm psyched and I've had an energy drink <laughs> and I'm going, you know what? I've got my mate here. I'm going to do this on a way harder climb and I'm getting boxed out of my mind and my forearms are really pumped. The message my, my forearms and my muscles and my body is suddenly getting is, okay, you're going to get boxed all the time from now on. You've got to get much better at coping and buffering uh, waste product and coping with this high level of pump. Mm. So the message is confused. And then if you look at that, like for one session, it might not matter too much, but if you systemically give mixed messages to your body and you get the stimulus and the intent of the session wrong, that's where we see performances plateau and uh, go up and down and move around quite a lot because you're not giving a consistent message of improvement in a certain area. If that makes sense, I think I was going oh, to it makes it. It's awesome. That's the yeah. single best argument I've ever heard for why you should do aerobic capacity yeah. work because <laughs> totally. everyone always just writes it off as like, oh, I can stay on the wall for a while. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. I think um, so. A good, a good little example then on that is um, every time you hold on to, so every time you grip a position and it's above like, it's, it's relatively low percentage your your muscles occlude, your capillaries occlude. So you generally work in anaerobically anytime you're holding onto the wall. Uh, this is bouldering, sport climbing, trad climbing even. Every time you let go of the hold, um, your body replenishes with oxygen. You get rid of uh, waste products. Uh, you can replenish oxygen, that blood delivery system. And we can see with um, infrared spectroscopy who can do that better and who can do that worse. And if you imagine being able to do that better, each time you grab a hold, your even your um, sort of creatine stores and your anaerobic ability to pull hard is going to be improved. So a boulderer who does a 10 move problem and is still flicking between holds and then has five minutes off the wall and then has another attempt, those who have much higher aerobic capacities will have a longer session will have better attempts on each go and be able to keep pulling on and trying moves because they're going to replenish those anaerobic stores much faster. Mm. And those boulders that neglect their aerobic capacity and don't do enough volume might have one or two really good burns, but then they'll be done. And their mate who's done that endurance training is going to work out the beta that they didn't figure out soon enough. Mm. Um, and that that's kind of always been my argument for everyone having like a base level of fitness that's bloody awesome i think that, <laughs> i think that's really complete gold actually yep i'm not going to cool. ignore those sessions anymore <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've had to argue with a lot of boulders over the years you see so i've got my <laughs> i've yeah. got arguments that tip my tongue quite a lot of the time yeah um, <laughs> can we just record uh, at the end of this once we finish the podcast 
can we just record like 10 of your different arguments that we can then play at different times? For people? <laughs> yeah, yeah we, can, we, can, we can do that. In the, we can have a little gif of me arguing against them. Yeah. <laughs> it can be people's like text message ringtone. You must do your aerobic capacity session because of this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So I think um, I, I could just listen to you talk about this stuff all night, to be perfectly honest, but um, but it would be good also to hear about um, where your climbing actually gets to fit in. So you spend all this time looking after everyone else's climbing and you're obviously on a climbing trip now, but um, I think when we read a little bit about you, Action Directs, on your tick list. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a long-term goal of mine. Um, yeah. I must admit, I've so for me personally, um, obviously started, I was a passionate climber that actually got me to go to sports science. Originally I'd, I'd come from a background in gymnastics and I went to do sports science cause I wanted to become a better climber. And, um, over the last, uh, probably six years, my own climbing has always played second fiddle to my coaching and lattice. Um, I've still managed to achieve, uh, a few things I'm, I'm proud of in my climbing, I'd say I'm an all-round climber, probably more uh, climbed up sort of a higher level in bouldering. Um, but since uh, some of the other members of the like the team's grown and we're able to have people like Dave taking on the organization, which I was always terrible at, if I'm honest, um, <laughs> I'm actually trying to climb a lot more now. So um, some of the goals I want to do, uh, like Action Direct's like a long-term goal of mine, um, I'd like to trad climb a bit harder I've, i'm sort of like the av plus project i'm on at the moment something i'll probably try and come back to in the spring um and then one element for me is is doing much bigger walls um multi-pitching has been something that has always appealed to me because it's about execution and it's about having a good work capacity so you can't sort of turn up and uh, be able to just have a couple of goes and walk away. It's about trying having that work capacity to keep repeating, uh, like high intensity after high intensity. Um, and also it terrifies me as well. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not the most confident climber. I'm, I'm quite happy to say that I've, I've done certain trad climbs, which people might consider scary, but, um, I'm, I'm generally someone who has to work really, really hard for the mental element of my climbing. Um, and Maddie's definitely heard me moaning and whimpering enough on this trip, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> to sort of help that argument. But um, we're off to sort of the Black Canyon and Yosemite next year. So yeah. I'd like to kind of push the mental side of my climbing next year a bit more and, and sort of bring that in line with more of the physical element. And then, yeah, eventually return to the, the pockets and monos, which I have admittedly neglected for some time <laughs> in order to do action direct so I think I'm a long way from that right now but yeah one day that, that's where I'll go back to so um yeah that's at the moment at the moment I'm definitely more and more uh focusing on my own climbing which I'm psyched for and what do you do just just because um it's I think it's a big one for lots of people so um just in a you know like you don't have to give us a PhD paper but I would love to read it if you write it um about your how do you work on your mental approach to your climbing um so for me I've actually I've explored different methods of doing it I've actually spoken to um different people so um Hazel Finley is a friend of ours mm -hmm. and I actually had a few sessions with her um and the only reason I, I wouldn't 
continue that is just because we are friends as well. So um, it's quite hard to flick between those sort of scenarios. But um, for me, it's kind of about exposure. And I think one thing that I've neglected over time is just that consistent exposure because I'll go through periods of really focused climbing and then I'll um, go into really heavy work and I won't have the work, but uh, the mental capacity mm-hmm. focus on climbing. Um, so I think consistency and exposure is just a, is a massive thing. And it's exactly what I said before, is that consistent message. Your body and your mind will adapt and it will budget mm-hmm. for that new prediction and your body will predict and your mind will predict what's coming and it wants to adapt to that. So if you make that progression gradual and consistent, your body will budget for that and it'll reduce the stress levels. It will reduce the response. And I really notice that if I am consistent. Um, mm. So that means full, I have to do full practice every year for at least a month. Um, if I go on a sport trip, having not done full practice, I notice it. I'm, I'm not actively scared. I'm not shaking on the route, sort of saying, oh my God. But um, <laughs> I am very aware that I'm over gripping and I'm tight and I'm not flowing. So I must do, I have to do full practice every year. Um, I need, to, if I'm on trad gear, I need to do a little bit of aiding. I need to like look at a bit of gear going in. I need to sit on it. I need to do full practice on that as well. Um, and then I guess the other sense, the other side of it in terms of a mental approach is is a little bit of that fear of failure still. Um, I'm definitely someone that puts a lot of pressure on myself like most climbers do. Um so I think there's a lot of kind of keeping your ego in check and making sure it's fun. Um, I really like the name athlete by choice that I know Duncan, uh, mm-hmm. the name of Duncan's company. I mean, he's, he's absolutely right. We're doing this because we want to, and we're supposed mm-hmm. to be enjoying it. So why and stressed out about it beyond outside of the moment? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for me, those kind of elements, it's, it's just a consistency thing and also a little bit of self-compassion in times when you're busy and that's one thing I didn't do for absolutely years um I mean me and Tom uh used to put in you know sort of 60 70 hour work weeks I think we worked out we were being paying ourselves about one pound 30 an hour for quite a long for quite a few (laughs) years and living so well for me at least on the on the bread line and it was a case of I was I would do I would do it for free so it was totally fine but then I was trying to perform and then I was trying to study and I'd go to the crag and I'd be so angry for getting nervous above a bolt because, and I've, I've already taken that fall and I was getting nervous because I was feeling tight and fatigued and so on. And I don't think people give themselves enough compassion in that situation that mm. you've just had a really busy, stressful work week. Yes. You've not been at the crag or been scared or, you know, training or anything like that, but your mind is tired and then all of a sudden you're just throwing this new stimulus at it so I think for me now I'm trying to change my work-life balance a little bit but then also I've kind of learned that self-compassion that when I am mentally fatigued not to expect too much from myself just to turn up be consistent give a little bit of stimulus to the right level and then hopefully it'll keep keep building from there hopefully that answers your question oh it's amazing (laughs) amazing like lots and lots of bits of gold, I think, that you've given us tonight. It's awesome. Yeah. It, it's if you see me in the crag and I'm just like absolutely screaming or shouting or something, don't bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's so easy, hey, to 
to think that the the mental approach to climbing is different to the physical approach, but it's the same principles that roll through all of it. And, and it's if you haven't done something for a while, it's going to feel hard initially as you blow off the dust and and the cobwebs. And yeah, if that's falling, if that's you haven't fingerboarded for a while, like those things are going to be a little bit out of whack. Mm. And yeah, it just and takes think- a, a slow approach to to build it back up, and we all want to get back to where we were at a hundred percent, and then push further, and we want to do it by tomorrow. And oh, definitely, and, and um, it works with all sense of things like performing in front of others as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And if only, say- if if Lattice could develop a pill, we'd be happy. Thanks. <laughs> oh, one day, but ph- ph- pharmaceutical performance—that's yeah. that's a different. That's a different conversation. All that's over. a whole other thing. <laughs> we'll wait till we're in Sheffield to have that conversation. <laughs> but like, like you said, Tom, as well, I think it works both ways in the sense of um, one thing that I I would love anyone who struggles a little bit with their head to think about is if you're tired or. If you if you've had a really busy like a stressful work week or like you you're really tired physically, um, or you've not trained or anything for a long time, you've had a month or two months, three months off. Would you go and do a max hang session, or would you go and jump on the hardest your project, your hardest boulder? You'd probably go, oh no, I'll get a finger injury. Mm. But then if someone's had a really busy work week or they've not climbed outside much, and then they're climbing way above a bolt on site and it's something that they're not used to um and then they get frustrated with themselves it's this mm. it's exactly the same as you've just pushed yourself beyond your current capacity way mm. too quickly and you don't get an injury but it will knock you back and that physical uh, psychological kind of effort that you've just put in is the same as someone doing an overly physical effort having not trained recently mm. and it might end up being more detrimental than if you'd just taken it a little bit easier on yourself. I think that's awesome. Awesome. Can I book you in for next week and we will just talk about that again? (laughs) No, that's climbing trip. No, yeah, you're allowed to you're allowed to go do your read actually. But yeah. I'm uh, I love geeking out about this stuff so I'm I'm happy to talk all day. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I think this has been one of my favorite podcasts to date, actually. <laughs> to say. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's so awesome to to dig into someone that is so knowledgeable about that stuff, but also, you know, that you can tell that you've spent a lot of time working with humans in it as well and understand both sides of um the performance thing, the performance uh thing, the thing, thing defense. <laughs> like you know, it, it's it's so awesome. Um, I love that holistic approach to it because it, it so is. So yeah, it's it's awesome to to chat and um, pick your brains and and be there and um, yeah yeah. Right. I mean, um, you guys should see uh, in the the office these days. Like we've got a little. Well, I say it's an office. It's effectively like a little private climbing wall that we all huddle in with down jackets on. But um, <laughs> this is the the conversation that we have in the team so frequently um and i feel super grateful to everyone at lattice because i'm i've got a certain skill set and like what a lot of what i've said today has been learned from from those guys and um i've bring i bring something to the team but i think just the amount of people that we have that everyone's a site climber 
everyone's had their own experiences in life and in climbing their climbing life and they all have their own sort of academic backgrounds and the conversations that I am able to share with other people outside of Lattice comes from that team and um, I'm like super proud of uh, being able to sort of work with them and, and have them as colleagues and stuff so um, yeah I'll, I'll definitely have to hand over some of the credits of mm-hmm. eventually having some insights into the, the human mind or body uh, I'm just I'm just riding off their uh, their intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're in the wrong room if you're the smartest person. So it's awesome to hear that. Um, yeah, you're surrounding yourself with people that uh, everyone's feeding off each other and everyone's learning, and it's awesome. I think the fu- I, it makes the future of um, climbing, training, and research look very very bright. Maybe you need some live streams of those weekly catch ups. Everyone can sit in and, and listen to to what each person's saying. That'd be pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, we've actually um because we we have taken on more coaches over the last few years and and uh, Maddie once again and um Ollie Grounds, who's one of the coaches, has developed this education system where we on board, we do months of sort of training with people when they become coaches with Lattice. So you don't you don't sort of start and get given clients, you're you go through different uh sort of modules of learning but now we've we've recorded all of these coach catch-ups so we've got this huge uh google drive of just these conversations and awesome. I, ha- I did see a, a new coach come on board and their eyes just widen as they saw the amount of stuff that was on there and I thought all oh, right yeah we do have a lot of conversations don't we <laughs> <laughs> You don't have to learn all of this straight away. <laughs> they're not allowed to not allowed to go on an overseas trip until they've listened to all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. It's been completely and utterly amazing. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. No, it's so awesome, man. Um, just uh, at the end, just let everyone know, obviously, um, lattice climbing, um, what is the easiest places to, to go and find uh, lattice on the internet? So uh, com is the website, which has a really good blog on it now. Um, we've got some good developers that have worked on sort of the way that looks and stuff. So there's links to articles and training advice and so on. Uh, we've put a lot of work into YouTube. So if you search Lattice Training on YouTube and then sort of Instagram uh, is the other place. Um, and we're constantly trying to put out educational information on all of those sites and opportunities as well to get involved whether that's research or um jobs or whatever so if people want to find out more about how they can get involved on the team then um yeah those three places are where we're at perfect i, I watched the um will Bosey interview with tom about him doing um mutation the other day and that oh, was nice. really rad watching that just like watching two psyched climbers frothing off about climbing um, it was really cool. So yeah, yeah, Go yeah, yeah. The it's great, it's great awesome. having people like him coming in because uh, it gives us all a good ego check when we walks into the office. So <laughs> <laughs> he looks so unassuming as well. Yeah, I mean, he's worked with Tom for nine years, I think, eight or nine years. Um, so yeah, like some of these long-term athletes that we've got, they're just part of the family. It's very much a family feel, and these uh, these athletes that have been with us for such a long time they kind of walk in and it's it's just like a little home for us so awesome Awesome. yeah sweet mate 
thank you so much. Uh, we'll let you get on with the rest of your day in France on your trip. We're very, cool. very envious that we are not in France too. Have a baguette and croissant for us. <laughs> yeah, and a bit of cheese. Will do, will do. All right, thanks very much. Brilliant. How good was that? I really enjoyed that chat. Um, it, he's just, yeah, there's something about it when you sit down and just get to chat with people that just know their stuff. It's really, really cool. Makes him want to learn even more. You can kind of hear his understated passion through it. We actually continued to chat when we stopped recording and yeah, super fun to just froth off about climbing and it's just that common language all the way around the world. So as Ollie said, uh, you can get in contact with Lattice Climbing, jump onto their YouTube, jump onto Instagram. I'm pretty sure they're probably on Twitter uh, and their website as well. So go check it all out. It's all absolutely fantastic information um, and their their approach to climbing and training and the person that is actually doing it is something that was super inspiring for us to hear. So uh, know that your climbing and your life is in very good hands if you trust Lattice um, to help you achieve your dreams. Anyway, that is it for now. Go off and enjoy your holidays and time off if you're lucky enough to have some. You're all awesome. Go have a good one. Catch you next time.